I'm going to turn this over to Jody. And uh, Jody is a uh, member of the faculty in uh, community pediatrics and has been one of the and has been uh, one of the leaders in our task force up here on cultural <coughs> competency. And so I just want to give a brief uh, introduction to some of the cultural company issues, and then I'll go in and show an example of one of the technologies that actually came out of uh, downtown from Teachers College and social work, and how we used it in my class up here. Okay, so good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, a lot of the work I did, well, I've worked with John, Michelle, uh, Michael here at Devlin at the school, Pablo, so join in uh, if I'm forgetting something. Cultural competency, I think, as you all know, is a, is a very important topic, but it's a, also a controversial one, a complicated one, not very straightforward, and really difficult to teach. And that's what I'll say in the next few slides. It's just what are the challenges. Uh, the first challenge, I think, is what the definition is. And there are multiple definitions. As soon as you put this slide in any classroom, a lot of you, you already lost half of the class because half of the class is already upset uh, for the terminology of cultural competency. There's articles and articles about how do we call this. It should be cultural humility, cultural sensitivity. What are you talking about? Then there was an article that I loved a year ago saying, let's just stop this whole thing. Let's just do the work, and then we'll figure out how we call it. Uh, there's a million definitions. Uh, the Academy of American Academy of Pediatric has one definition. Uh, the OMH, the Office of Minority Health, calls it as a cultural and linguistic competency is a set of congruent behaviors, attitudes, and policies that come together in a system agency or among professionals and enables <coughs> effective work in cross-cultural situations. Um, so how do we do this? The, the second challenge uh, so first is the definition. The second one is what does it entail? And I, I think a lot of people, in, you know, I work in community pediatrics and cultural competency, both terminologies that if you talk to old uh, people with a lot of experience in your field, they'll say, what is community pediatrics? All of pediatrics is community pediatrics. And people will say the same with cultural competency. What is cultural competency? All, we always work across, cultures, but you, across cultures, but you have to teach something. Uh, and you have to define what is it that you're teaching so then you can assess it and you can evaluate and you can figure out if the outcomes have any meaning. So uh, we came together across the campus here a few years ago and created a committee on cross-cultural education to try to figure out if we can start developing some language in common between all our schools here at the campus and we invited the School of Social Work and we decided that our definition will be uh, cultural linguistic responsive services and we came up with these competencies. So so the first one is self-awareness, uh, which is developing an understanding of one's own personal cultural values and beliefs and an impact on health and healthcare delivery. I think this is the core of the issue because it really starts with us. It's not a um, culture when you're dealing with cultural competency is not the end product but is the process and it's really examining where are we coming as providers in the healthcare profession and really examining biases stereotyping and then when we talk about the culture of medicine what's the racism 
in the medical profession or in the healthcare profession that's dealing with disparities. And I can tell you right now that's another extremely controversial issue uh, and how to teach it is it's extremely complicated. Um, the second one is cross-cultural knowledge, which is to develop an understanding of, I'm getting old, I need glasses, how belief cultures and ethnic practices can influence health behavior and health status. And this is very important to just to highlight that it's not, uh, what happens here a lot is there's another set of literature discussing are we teaching the different cultural norms of different groups and obviously that's not what we want to do. We want to teach skills that are applicable so you can elicit cultural norms with whoever client or patient you're encountering. With that being said, we just held some three-hour cultural competence for all our pediatric residents uh, and the need to understand, for example, we have a big Orthodox Jewish community in our inpatient and children's to really understand just basic norms because some of the residents are baffled by uh, uh, food uh, structures in the Orthodox Jewish community, not an eye uh, contact within the Orthodox uh, fathers. Uh, so you can teach a little bit of basic uh, cultural norms, but I think the most important thing is to teach the skills that elicit the cultural norms of each group. Um, and there are mechanisms to do that. Uh, otherwise, you run the risk of really stereotyping different communities. Obviously, the Latinos feel this way, the Orthodox Shields feel the others, etc. cetera. Um, and there's obviously a lot of diversity. I'm from Argentina, and my cultural uh, background has nothing to do with my Spanish-speaking colleagues in the Dominican Republic. Um, language diversity is another one, which is provide or advocate for the provision of information and services in language appropriate to the client, as well as the provision of interpreters where needed. This is another set of controversies. Every single topic is two or three years of discussion, with people always getting upset. Are we teaching the language of the majority of the population we serve? And again, we feel very strongly that you're not teaching the language, which is teaching the language is okay but you need to teach the skills to talk to whatever language you encounter. If you go to Maimonides Medical Center right now, you have 20 predominant languages. Here we have Spanish. I'm very comfortable with Spanish, but I have a very big Palestinian uh, group that came in after the second intifada up in Washington Heights that I serve. I don't know any Arabic. We all need to learn how to use interpreter services, either uh, you know person interpreter services or telephonic interpreter services, and that's one of the things that we're trying to accomplish in the school is really teaching the interpreter skills. Obviously, if you know a little Spanish, then that will help. It will create a sense of comfort in the environment, uh, but there's a lot of issues and a lot of literature on the false sense of uh, fluency and all the problems that that carries. Delivery of care is putting it together in a good, obviously, outcome and quality care. And finally, the issue of advocacy, which is to advocate for public policies and programs that promote and support culturally and linguistic responsive services. This is very important, and we just started a legislative advocacy curriculum for our pediatric residents because it's very important that we health providers have a voice in the policy in the system. All the issues of cultural competency are like the government likes to do, which we call unfunded mandates. We're mandated to do things with absolutely no resources. Uh, so I, I believe more and more as I get older that it's, uh, it's all grassroots, but we also need to work on a policy level, obviously, <coughs> otherwise nothing will happen. So we can teach whatever we want in the classroom, but if it's not happening in the hospital corridors, it's just not going anywhere. So. What is it is a problem, what to teach is a controversy, when to teach it is a huge one. 
We've tried many different things with many different grants. Um, are you teaching it at the undergraduate level, graduate, postgraduate level? Are medical students re really ready to listen what you want to say in the first two years? Not really. Is there time to teach it in the third and fourth year? Absolutely not. Does it make any sense to teach this when you don't have experience on the ground? I don't think so. Do you need some basic skills? Yes. And that's the ongoing discussion. There's no answer. Different course directors choose different things to do, but it's not an uh, easy thing. A lot of the things that we need to talk about is self-awareness, and I think if you spend your whole life trying to get to medical school and you finally get there, the last thing you want to hear in your first month of lecture is that you have bias or stereotypes or that we are not able to communicate with our patients. And that really resonates truth when you start uh, working in clinical situations and then the time in the school and in the clerkships is so tight that there's very little space for these type of discussions to occur. Although Mike is doing, I think, a wonderful job in creating days within the clerkships to discuss all these issues. Um, so you have to decide when to do that. Who is the teacher? I think it's another issue. Uh, are you teaching this as a social justice, a social equity issue? Are you teaching cultural competency as a human rights issue to try to uh, really try to eliminate disparities? Are you using the language of quality of care? And depending on the language that you use, depending on who are you ostracizing in the classroom. Um, who teaches it? Me, white, but from Argentina, but not Caribbean, but Jewish, but hybrid, but doesn't fit anywhere. <laughs> Um, and I start talking about race and then I get all these emails that I'm racist. So then I ask my colleague who's African-American, you're black, you do this introductory lecture. Then she gets an email from all the non-minority students saying, why are you blaming us for racism? We're not racist. So who the person is, how we talk, the words we use, our political views, uh, the introduction to disparities, we moved it to the spring in the medical school, and then all the comments is, this is too liberal, this is too <coughs> left-wing, this is not right, why are you blaming us, we're a good hospital. It creates a whole slew of discussions that, by the way, I think that the fact that people are talking about it, you've accomplished 99% of this, the, uh, what you want to accomplish. It's just that a lot of deans and people in the school are not happy with that because they want everybody to be happy. This is not a curriculum that makes people happy. This is a curriculum that creates space for people to talk. And we doctors want to solve everything, so we want to talk about issues that get resolved, that everybody's happy, that everybody puts a five in the Likert scale. This is not going to happen. And what's sad to see is when it doesn't happen, it gets left out of the curriculum because we're not comfortable with it. I think the best that you can accomplish with this type of curriculum is create a comfort level that people can talk. We're not resolving racial tensions in society over the last 100 years. Uh, the other issue of who teaches it is do we faculty teach it or is the community teaching it? Uh, I'm a very, very, very strong believer that community has to teach this. If we want to keep ourselves honest, I need to hear what the other people who are receiving the services or who view us from outside talk about the culture of medicine. So all curriculum in community <coughs> pediatrics is mostly focused on service learning, using community partners or teachers. We've tried to do this in the school, and it's, it happened for a few years. I don't think it's going to happen in the future. But it is very important that you decide, are you going to give a voice to patient and community? I'm going late, right? OK, I'll hurry up. Uh, the last one is, where do you teach it? 
Is it going to be weaved into courses or standalone course? Obviously, it has to be weaved into courses. The problem is then you're not the course director. If you're not the course director, you don't have any authority to decide what goes into the course. And this tension is very, very important. What we're going to portray now is a tool that we developed together that I thought I was pretty naive. I thought I would come and bring a nice little present to course directors and say, here, use it. But if it's not theirs, if they didn't develop, if they don't have ownership, if they didn't put the place in it, there's no room. So it's being used in dental, not in medicine, but that's okay. Uh, but that's something that um, you have to think about. And lastly, how to teach it. Uh, like everything else, I think different educational methodologies are very important. The New York State now has a mandate that's not uh, that we don't comply with because it's another one of these famous unfunded mandates where you have to have eight hours of cultural competency training a year uh, in four different modalities, two hours each. So I think there's an intelligence there that this is not a thing that you can teach in one workshop, in one lecture. In community peds we have everything from a very sensory experiential experience the first week they get here where all 20 interns do a walking tour through the community. Uh, talking about everything that relates to environment and health and culture, uh, to three-hour workshops, to peer-to-peer -peer observation when we're teaching community skills. So I think it's a, a multiple modality issue. And what we're going to present now, and John will portray, is using video to teach this, which I think the importance of it, and I'm just going to skip through this, um, <coughs> is one of it is obviously it's web-based, so it creates a third field. Uh, John, you'll talk about what VITAL is, right? Um, I just wanted to say this, that why use VITAL? It promotes reflection in a private space. As I said, I think the issue of biases and stereotyping and where we are in this continuum process of understanding cross-cultural issues or racism in our society and how that plays out and outcomes in care um, requires a lot of private space. We've had group discussions with medical students where at the end, one student said, well, it's not politically correct for me to say really how I feel. Uh, and the taboo is huge. So I think Vital is wonderful of video tools because you're reflecting in a private space and, um, and within a process. Uh, and so that's the second bullet. And the other one is really allows the student to connect what they see on the wards, what they see in the clinic, what they see in the field with how they think and what they get taught in the course. So that's it. Thank you. So let me go to um, describe how I use VITAL in my course, okay? And then you'll get to see VITAL. What is VITAL? Let's all just talk about VITAL, but you don't get to see it. We'll show you soon. Uh, so the first question is, um, you know, the, the curriculum content. So this is a first year, first semester dental course. When Dirty things you can't teach cultural competency, but I believe you can, and you got to get them right away. And uh, the way I teach it, because my course is really about the whole language of um, being a healthcare provider. So it's diagnosis and research and data. I come from an informatics background, so information and data is very important. So my belief is, if you're biased, your data is wrong. So if you're collecting wrong data, you can't deliver good healthcare. So you have to start at the very beginning to understand what are the lens that you th see your patient and your information through. So that's the challenge, is how can I teach this to first-year dental students in the first semester? Um, and then my hypothesis was that um, I wanted to engage the students in deeper learning. I hope that this would happen. They'd have a more critical analysis of a patient interaction. 
and that they could actually project themselves into the clinical setting. And I, the challenges that came with that are a lot of the videos that we saw for cultural competency are very stereotypical, and you put them on and everybody starts to laugh, or it's like, oh my God, this is horrible. You know, I'd never do anything like that. So they, they really just, you know, end up creating a bad educational situation. So then we used uh, the design in this process. All I had to do was take a tool developed by the center and design an assignment around that tool. So I just put the context into that. And then, of course, I gave it to the students and looked to see how it worked. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, research that's done by social work and also uh, Teachers College on the tool itself. And also there's a large grant now uh, where they're looking at it in different areas. So uh, what I did is I just made a, some short uh, movies of, the, uh, of an interaction here so I don't have to drive and get confused all the time. Um, and yeah, uh, he's making sure I know how to do this. Oh, the way, it's Apple F to get full screen, right? I switched from an Apple to a Windows a couple years back and forgot it. So at the, uh, at the start here, you'll see there's uh, the course home, the course library, and also manage clips, and we're going to expand it and get uh, to the actual assignment. So you may have uh, multiple assignments in one course, and you'll see up here is, is my course. And you'll see there's a due date and a status uh, that the student can tell. And here's the assignment. And Dodie didn't go through, but I use this mnemonic called LEARN, which is uh, listen, explain, acknowledge, recommend and negotiate. So that at least gives them a framework of how to look at these videos and how to work with them. The next part is, uh, if they were the doctor, what would they do differently? And the third part is just to look at any other issues such as legal issues, HIPAA and things like that that may occur in this clinical setting. And for this, we used ER clips. So we went and got all the episodes of ER and sat through, and uh, actually Mary Jo Fink is coming to one of these. I don't see her this morning. Uh, but she helped uh, run through all these ER clips and find, and there are great material in ER. So we used uh, these uh, ER clips to actually do that. And you see the clips down here, and the students were assigned to one of the two sessions. So the students can also look at all the videos that they're assigned through the video library. And you'll see here, uh, we go back and the student would open up the clip. It'll pop open. And this is where they're going to work with the video. And it'll stream up and here they'll go and they can pause it, they can fast forward it. Uh, I turned the sound off here. Uh, they hit a start point when they want to make a clip and they hit um, an end point when they're done. Okay. And at this point, they can give the clip a title, and then they can also, you see, type in their notes uh, for that clip. And this is so when they go back again, they can find the clip and remember, you know, why did they think that was important. And, they can, and obviously, they're going to watch this multiple times, and this will focus them in on one particular area of the video. Uh, the other feature, too, that you can use is they can tag the the clip with keywords. So they could use their mnemonic like learn, acknowledge, explain, and tag the clip as an example of that, or HIPAA or something like that, so they can give it keywords. And then on the right-hand side, you'll see there, uh, there is a clip already, and when they uh, close that, 
and then save it, it'll add it to their clips on the right. So they go through and create these clips of what they see in the video explaining that. And then they can go back and watch the little clip too and just play that one little section if they want, want to remember what it is. Okay. Yeah, George Clooney, yeah. <laughs> so they're going through uh, watching these, okay. Catch up here. They can also view it by the types of tags they put on or when they modified it. Once they have all their clips, uh, now they can go back and actually uh, work on the assignment itself. So they may re uh, refresh themselves what they were supposed to do. And this is a multimedia essay <laughs> is the assignment. So open up this window. It still keeps uh, their instructions on the left-hand side. And they see all their clips down here that they've collected on their video. And if you click on them, it will open up. If they forgot what the clip was about, it opens it up again so they can view the clip. Okay. And then you can go back and the student then composes the essay. So they can work on this in parts. They don't have to do it all in one fell swoop. So they had already started, so they can go back, uh, start writing their text, and put it in. And you'll see there is one clip in there already. Uh, and you can use uh, bullets and the basic you know, word types of things, uh, bold and italics. You can insert hyperlinks and pictures. Uh, but the, really what they're supposed to be doing is uh, using the videos as evidence of what they're describing. So once they describe something, they'll go back and click on the clip to insert it into uh, the video, or sorry, into the text there. So you pick the point, go back, click on add to the essay, and then it'll add it up into the point uh, in the text where you have your cursor. Okay? And that's how the student embeds that into the essay. Then they hit submit, and when they hit submit, it actually gets sent to the instructor. So when they're done, they use the submit button, otherwise they can use a save draft as they go through. So that's how, what a student would do, but now as instructor, what do I see and what was the outcomes, what do we actually look at? So the instructor view, if I'm going in now as John Zimmerman, okay, and you'll see I still have, there's my course, uh, I have the course home, the course library. I can have clips also, and I can also have a roster. If I expand it, I see my assignment uh, with the video clips, just like the student sees, and the learning mnemonics. I already told you about them. Write the learn, okay. And then you can, add, you can edit the assignment, so it's very easy to create new assignments or edit it. And you can see here I'm editing. You can edit the text of the assignment. You can also change uh, the due date down here. And that's when it gets posted to the student. And then you can view responses. And you can attach other videos, too, if you wanted to do more videos. The course library, uh, here are the videos that I have uploaded. Uh, and you can see that I've already grouped them as different areas that I'm looking for the students that they pull them from. You can add new videos uh, to the library. And each video uh, is just a link in the web. And you can hide videos if you don't want the students to see them yet. If you're still doing something in progress or want to release them later on, you can hide that. 
You, know, you can see the different categories. That, that's what I'll use for evaluation, is whether they picked up things in the categories. And then here is the teacher's view of seeing the video also. And if I wanted to add clips, it's a good thing if you go through and add the clips also of all the different points you think the students are supposed to pick out in the video, and that's a good reference for you to go back and see. So now the students actually do, um, I'll give some clips. And you can see here's the different notes that I put in and the topics that that clip would be covering. And the roster is the students in your course. And you can actually go through and you can change their access level. If some people are supposed to be TAs or a guest or instructor, you can do that here. Uh, you can also, if there are people who are not Columbia uh, people, you can add uh, new users to the course too, if they aren't Columbia, if you have some guests. But also, obviously, being aware of the student privileges and confidentiality. So now if we view the assignments, if we look at the view roster, it tells you how many students have completed it. And that's when they hit the submit, uh, submit button. And I've actually asked a couple of students if I can show their work. Uh, you can also have the ability, if a student says, well, I did it, but it's wrong, can you reset it? So you can sort of zero it out, and they can work on it again and resubmit it. And that happens usually once or twice a semester when you have to do that. So here's uh, one student's um, write-up, and you can see, um, you know, for dental students, I think they write a lot, you know. It used to be pretty difficult to get the students to write anything, uh, but they seem to really enjoy it, so I think it engages them. And you can see in here the student is actually using uh, the words and uh, recommend and negotiate, so they're thinking in that context, and then they insert the video uh, in that text. And there's another student here, June, I'll show you, uh, and we'll look at her actual, you know, what she wrote a little bit. They always come up with good stuff, and they come up even with things that I hadn't thought about even in a couple years occasionally. Uh, so here's uh, June's work, and we'll scroll down here, and I'll pause. And uh, so you can see here, clearly Ray is, um, I also have trouble seeing. <laughs> clearly Ray is not suffering from any identifiable disease. He comes in with a headache, this kid does. Um, he seeks relief from an illness, specifically Ray is going through a sexual identity crisis. So uh, he comes in complaining of headaches, but it ends up the guy's gay, and he has uh, tension related to that, but they're doing CAT scans and everything else. The most effective treatment for Ray's illness is simply listening and supportive ear. Unfortunately, Dr. Ross has an archaic view of the doctor's responsibility. He only sees value in health problems that involve infection, bacteria, viruses, and the like, leaving everything else outside his sphere of reference and area of expertise. So this is a first year, first semester dental student who already got the idea of illness and disease. All right, so I can see that they picked up, I had him read then what's the guy's paper? I forget Climate. it. Client paper on illness and disease. And they got it. So they're actually working with that knowledge. Um, and so they go through and, um, and then uh, she actually goes on to uh, explain some more things about what she would do and how she would use explain and acknowledge and listen. Uh, so it's, it always makes me feel really good when I read these because I really feel I can sort of get into the student's mind and understand it. And what we believe is happening and what I think this demonstrates is 
if they just watched the video, they would just write this broad sort of overarching kind of paper. But when they do this, they narrow it down to here this student, see right here they did something wrong. And here's what I would have done instead of that at that place. And it really gives me a good sense of are they getting it or not and how much knowledge they do. <laughs> so I feel it's, it's very um, effective way to introduce them to cultural competencies, to get them to reflect, to get them to stop and think about the clinical process and the clin clinical interviewing as they go through. Uh, and uh, it works for me. And plus, the students really seem to enjoy it. And actually, Michelle, I was away somewhere, and I said, okay, here's your assignment, and then Michelle was able to go in and follow up. What we do in the course is not uh, have them do every single, um, they can post it and see each other. What we do is come back as a class and then discuss the issues. And Michelle was able to do that for me, to, to stand in for as a substitute teacher. So that's vital, okay? And I said, we'll give you a short break now.